This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. Jay Sklar on the book of Exodus. Dr. Sklar is a professor of Old Testament at Covenant Theological Seminary. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Sklar teaches on how to preach and teach from Leviticus. For over 20 years, the focus of my academic research was on the book of Leviticus. And uh, I had a chance to study with a man named Gordon Wenham. Some of you may have used his commentaries on Leviticus or Genesis, those kinds of things. Uh, But from PhD work on for the next 20 years, that that was my focus. And I learned a lot of important things during that time. Um, For example, one way to get out of a conversation at a dinner party is to tell people you've been studying Leviticus for 20 years. Uh, It works like a charm. You should try it sometime if you're ever in one of those awkward conversations. Uh, But even more, as I studied Leviticus, there were times about a year into my PhD where I would go to church and a song would go up on the screen that would mention the word atonement or mention the word ransom or mention sacrifice. And it was incredibly hard for me not to cry because studying Leviticus has helped me understand so much more deeply and profoundly what it was that God had done for us in Christ. And so I'm delighted to see folks here thinking, how could we possibly teach or preach the book of Leviticus? And what I'd like to do today, if we think of kind of two parts of this seminar this morning, the first part is I'm, I'm just going to go through and share with you some things I've learned over the years in terms of, hey, this is why it's hard for us or hard for many listeners to identify or understand Leviticus. And if we're going to teach and preach it, here are, the, here are some of the, the key things that I found helpful in making that bridge between the far distant world of Leviticus and our world today. So that's, that's going to be the bulk of our time. And then, and then the second thing I'll do is we've got a handout that gives some different suggestions for, hey, if you were going to teach or preach on this book, what are some different series you might do, um, uh, different approaches that you could take in teaching and Um, and preaching through the book of Leviticus. So let me start off here. I've got a series of questions, as you can see from the handout. The first is, why do we struggle with Leviticus? It makes an assumption, of course, that many of us do struggle with Leviticus. Um, I did meet one commissioner already this morning who said, Leviticus is my favorite book. 
And uh, I told them, you do know you're in a minority, right? <laughs> that is not a majority position for most folks. Uh, one student um, shared with me they'd, they'd never finished reading it before in Bible reading plans, and they, they got through it and wrote at the end of their, <laughs> at the end of their, at chapter 27, praise God, I made it. You know, that was their, that was their response to Leviticus. Uh, but we struggle with it for various reasons. And um, let me be begin just by asking you, uh, in your own experience, or as you think about those you, you are leading in teaching and preaching ministries, why do we struggle with the book of Leviticus? Start us off. It's, yeah, and I'll repeat each of these. Um, we'll, if we have a Q&A time later on, we'll, we'll have a mic for that. But yeah, it's hard to get to immediate application from the book of Leviticus. You read chapter two on the, uh, the grain offering, and you finish reading on the grain offering, and you're thinking, um, so what? How does, this, how does this help? Yeah. You lose the forest for the trees because Leviticus has so many details throughout it that it's hard to, there's no narrative flow to the book, right? And not only that, how does it fit into the larger story of the Pentateuch? You know, why does Leviticus occur here? There's actually a very good logical reason it occurs here. The Israelites are saying hallelujah when they get it. But why does it occur here? You can lose the forest for the trees. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so Leviticus, uh, if you're trying to just go through it chapter by chapter, do you end up repeating a lot of stuff? Uh, because it talks a lot about sacrifice. How long can you actually talk about sacrifices, right? So that, that can be a challenge. Yes? The lack of shared world experience and then trying to understand some of this stuff looks incredibly arbitrary. Why do these animals look clean? Why are these yeah. animals not? Good. So, you see that yeah, double, yeah, double yeah. So, so there, there's on the one hand the cultural distance of Leviticus to our own day. So, in our church, you can't even throw rice during a wedding, right? And in a Leviticus worship service, blood is being splattered everywhere. That's fairly different, right? And then there does seem to be this arbitrariness to it. Why, why is a goat clean but not a camel? Richly speaking, uh, and sometimes not just arbitrariness, but offensiveness. Why is a mother impure twice as long when she gives birth to a girl baby compared to a boy baby? Right. So, I mean, we could go on. There are all sorts of reasons why we struggle with Leviticus today. Let me uh, give you a few reasons why I think Leviticus is important. Uh, the first is the New Testament writers thought it was important. 39 books in the Old Testament, and as you know, the New Testament often quotes these 39 books. If you were to line up in order books that from the Old Testament most quoted to least quoted, right, 39, most quoted to least quoted in the New Testament, where does Leviticus show up? If we were writing the New Testament, where would Leviticus show up? Right? It's 37, 38, 39, you know, doing battle with Chronicles or something like that. Right? It actually shows up sixth most quoted book in the New Testament, which is surprising, I think, to many people when they first hear it, but, 
But then if we just begin to think, yeah, how do you understand Hebrews without Leviticus, right? How do you understand much of the life of Jesus without Leviticus? And that actually leads to the second reason why it's important. It provides such rich background for understanding the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, the, the sense of how do you understand atonement without a book like Leviticus? Uh, let me, let me illustrate this quickly with a, a story that comes off the mission field. There were missionaries years ago that went to a tribe in Papua New Guinea. And they spent months there learning the language, um, the culture, all those sorts of things. And finally, after, I don't know, a year or something like that, they got to a point where they could begin to teach the Bible. Now this tribe, they, they knew nothing, absolutely nothing about the Bible. And so the missionaries knew we can't start with the Gospels. As much as we're ready to talk about Jesus, they won't make any sense without the Old Testament story. So they began back in Genesis, and they began going through the books of the, the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament. And as they did so, anytime they got to a story about sacrifice, they would underscore the fact that, you know, sacrifice works because God in his grace allows this, this spotless lamb to give its lifeblood on behalf of the lifeblood of the sinner, that the sinner might be forgiven. So they would explain that concept. Finally, they got to the Gospels. And for a week, Jesus was the village hero. I mean, you had these tribes people getting up before dawn to come and listen to stories about Jesus. Towards the end of the week, they finally got the missionaries to the story of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And what they did is they invited some um, tribes people from another tribe that had converted to Christianity to come in and act out the passion narrative. And they videotaped this. And, and you, you can watch that as uh, Jesus is being beaten and flogged, that the tribes people cannot understand what is going on. Who would do this to Jesus, this teacher and healer and man who loves so well. Why? What is going on? And then they got to the crucifixion and the, the person who was playing the Christ figure had on a t-shirt and under the t-shirt was a bag filled with red dye. And you remember in the story when the soldier comes and pierces the side of Jesus with the spear. And when that happened, the bag of dye broke and the shirt began to soak red as, as though with blood. And at that moment, you could see on some of the tribes people's face the dawn of comprehension. Oh, Jesus is that lamb for us. And, and after the, the crucifixion and um, the burial and then the resurrection, the Christ figure comes forward again. The missionary declares Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of a sudden, this, this elderly man pops up and he says in his tribal language, Itao, which means, yes, I believe. And he goes on to explain, I believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who, who takes away my, my sin. I can be forgiven because of him. And over here, a village elder lady pops up, and she begins to say the same thing, Itao, and goes on to describe her belief in Jesus. And then someone over here, and someone, someone over here. And in this tribe, the way that they showed joy was by jumping up and down. And all of a sudden, as the gospel was understood, there came this tipping point where the whole tribe just turned into this mosh pit of praise, jumping up and down, exclaiming with joy that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away this, takes away the sin of the world. And they understood the gospel because they understood the kinds of things that, Le that Leviticus is talking about. Right. 
So we need Leviticus. It's important. A third reason is it speaks to the areas of life that are most central to our humanity. We have been created to walk with God and embody his character in this world. And Leviticus talks a lot about what gets in the way of that, uh, namely our sin. How far God has done to restore us towards doing our mission, atonement, and what embodying his character looks like, holiness. All of these things are focused on in the book of Leviticus. And what that means is that the book of Leviticus is actually incredibly helpful in uh, what, was, what, was, uh, what were the Israelites called to be? A kingdom of what? Priests and a holy nation. You know where that comes? Exodus 19. And then the Lord enters into covenant with them in Exodus 20 through 24. And then he says, and before you leave this mountain, build a tabernacle for me because I want to live in your midst. And at the end of Exodus, he descends into their midst, and the Israelites now know we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and we've got this God of ultimate purity and holiness dwelling in our midst. How can he dwell in our midst without evaporating us in our sin? And what does it mean for us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? And the answer is Leviticus which begins with seven chapters on sacrifice that teaches the people of Israel how to deal with their sin, that they might continue in relationship with God. The answer is Leviticus, which in chapters 8 through 10 gives uh, commandments about priests and ordains them, that, that they'll have mediators to go between them and, and God. The answer is Leviticus, which in 11 through 15 discusses ritual purity and impurity and how to be ritually pure before this holy God. The answer is Leviticus, which in Leviticus 16 has the day of atonement. This, this once a year spiritual spring cleaning, getting rid of all of their sin. And the answer is Leviticus, which in 17 through 27 gives all sorts of laws and regulations that describe what it means to embody the character of God. You see, we often look at Leviticus as a burden for the Israelites. It was such a blessing. Because if you're an Israelite at this point in history, you've got burning questions on how is it possible to have this holy God in your midst and for you to embody his character in the world. Guess what? It's not just the Israelites who are called, who are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember somebody else picking up on that in the New Testament? Yeah, First Peter, right? We are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First Peter 2.9. And so I'd suggest that means Leviticus has something to say to us as well. So, we struggle with it, but it's also important. What kinds of things do we have to keep in mind to teach it well? And let me give you five different questions here and suggest some answers that uh, have been helpful for me over the years, at least, as I've taught different students um, and in different contexts in the church on Leviticus. One of the most important questions is how do we read law well? How do we read law well? And there are four keys here to remember. By the way, this is an important question because Leviticus, from a genre perspective, is almost entirely law. It's almost entirely law. So if you're going to teach or preach Leviticus well, you've got to have a good approach to understanding law. So let me give you four keys to remember here. The first, laws reflect the values of the lawgiver. Laws reflect the values of the lawgiver. I think this makes intuitive sense to most of us, even as moderns. Um, why do we have laws against murder in our society today? What do we value? We value life. Right? Why do we have laws against stealing? 
Well, there's an underlying value, the right to private property. Laws reflect the values of the lawgiver. Hey, guess what? That means when you come to a book like Leviticus, which is almost entirely law, let me flip Leviticus on its head right now for, for many of you. That means Leviticus is actually a chance, it's a window into the heart of God. Is that how we think about a book like Leviticus? <laughs> Typically not. But if laws reflect the values of the lawgiver, and if this book is full of the Lord's laws, wow, we get a window into the heart of the Lord. How exciting is that? The psalmist in Psalm 119, longest psalm in the Bible, what's, his, what's it about, Psalm 119? The law. And what's his approach to the law, his perspective on the law? It's a delight. He longs for it. And by the way, when the psalmist is talking about the law, at the least, what books of the Bible does he have in mind? Genesis through Deuteronomy, including Leviticus. He burns with desire for Leviticus. Can you believe that? Well, he understands how Leviticus functions. So anyway, look at, on your handout, Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither will you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You will not strip your vineyard bare. You will not gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You will leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. What are some of the underlying values in forming this law? What are some of the underlying values in forming this law? God's love for the poor, obviously. Deep compassion for those who are poor. What else? His people would be generous. That his people, so it's not just that he has deep love and compassion for the poor. He also values the generosity of his people. And even here, values generosity above maximizing profit. If you're leaving one... At, side of your field, unharvested. Uh, by the way, everyone would be able to tell if you weren't doing it, right? It's right there. If you leave it unharvested, you're not maximizing your profit, but there's something God values more than that. Note as well, he values um, human dignity that comes through work because he gives here those who don't have the opportunity to put in hard work to, to gather their own food. And that, that speaks to our dignity as humans and how, how work relates to that. Right? So there are values underlying these laws. Here's one that's a bit trickier. Leviticus 1.3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Uh, and this, this is where many people might say, a male without blemish. That seems a contradiction. How can you have this? But we're talking about animals here, right? Male without blemish. Why? Why would the Lord say these sacrifices that you offer should be, if they're a male, they should be without blemish? Why without blemish? What's, the, what's there's an underlying value here. He certainly values authenticity in worship. Absolutely. What's that? Okay, yeah, don't give something cheap, right? There, there's a, uh, isn't this what we teach our, our children? That, uh, hey, if you're going to do something special for mom on her birthday, do something that, uh, we might not use this language, but costs you something. 
put effort into it because the kind of gift you give something says something about how you value that person. Right? So when you give, actually some of you might be thinking of later in Malachi chapter 1 where the people are being rebuked. And one of the reasons they're being rebuked is because they're offering um, animals that are blind. Which if you think about it, uh, it's kind of a tricky thing to do. Uh, as in deceptive thing to do because if you've got a blind animal, it looks perfectly healthy and fine. And if you can just lead it to the priest and have the priest take it and keep going, no one knows. Everyone thinks you've given this perfectly healthy animal, but the Lord knows. And he's, what's the rebuke? He says, give them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? And the Israelites would be thinking, are you crazy? Do you think I have a death wish to give something like this to my governor? I'm not going to do that. Because when you give something like that to your governor, you're saying you're not worthy of the best. And, and that's Malachi's point exactly. Right? So the, the, the point here is simply laws reflect the values of the lawgiver. So as you're reading law well, you want to remember that and often be asking yourself, so what's the value here? What's going on underneath? What's the, the, uh, the moral logic of this law? Second key to remember, laws usually have a paradigmatic function. Laws usually um, function as a paradigm or as a model. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. It's not necessarily true with the law describing a certain sacrifice, but uh, many of the laws that talk about aspects of everyday life uh, have a paradigmatic function. That is to say, you're supposed to be able to think, oh, if this is true, it also means these things would be true as well. So I've got a great quote here from Doug Stewart, who says, uh, God's revealed covenant law to Israel was paradigmatic. Uh, and here's what he means. No Israelite could say, the law says, I must make restitution for stolen oxen or sheep, but I stole your goat. I don't have to pay you back. Or the law says anyone who attacks his father or mother must be put to death. But I attacked my grandmother, so I shouldn't be punished. Or the law says certain penalties apply for hitting someone with a fist or stone. But I kicked my neighbor with my foot and hit him with a piece of wood, so I shouldn't be punished. Such arguments, he said, would have insulted the intelligence of all concerned and made no impact on those rendering judgments. It's connection with the, it is connection with the paradigmatic nature of Israel's covenant laws that Jesus, following the, proper, the established tradition in Judaism, could make so sweeping an assertion that two laws sum up all the rest. Right. Why? Because you're supposed to be able to apply these in other contexts. And so that's important as you're going through because you're beginning to think through how are we, uh, how does this particular law apply to other contexts? And I'll show you in a moment how the Westminster Standards do this. Third key to keep in mind uh, is the difference between the floor and the ceiling. The difference between the floor and the ceiling. And I'm taking this language from an article that Gordon Wenham wrote, The Gap Between Law and Ethics in the Bible. And Wenham's argument is very simple but brilliant. What Wenham says is basically this. You know, what laws often do is they indicate a minimum standard of behavior that you should not sink below. He calls it the floor. Do not murder. That's a minimum standard of behavior. Don't sink 
don't sink below that. But Wenham points out that you can keep uh, you can keep laws like that and still not be a righteous person. Because righteousness doesn't consist in making sure you don't sink be below the floor. And this is what Jesus begins to get at in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? You think that you're righteous because you haven't murdered? No, let, let me show you a different way, right? And so this leads to the ceiling. And, and because there are values behind all of the laws, those values point to an ethical ideal for which we strive. That's what Wenham calls the ceiling. So if do not murder is the floor, underlying value, value of life, what's the ceiling then? What is righteous behavior? Well, righteous behavior is doing the types of things that try and help life to flourish and sustain life. The righteous person is the one who's, who has his, has his eye on the ceiling. Um, she's the one who's striving to fulfill the ideal that the laws are pointing to. Right? So laws re reflect values. They're paradigmatic in nature. And we need to remember the difference between the floor and the ceiling. And you can see how uh, centuries ago in the Westminster Standards, those three things are already brought together. What is, so when you get to the Ten Commandments in the standards, here's from the larger catechism, what is the Sixth Commandment? Answer, the Sixth Commandment is, you shall not kill. And then the question becomes, what are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? Uh, and, and here what they're doing, they begin to go paradigmatically. Right? Have you ever recognized this is what they're doing? They're, they're saying, well, that, that implies a whole bunch of things. And as they do so, they, they do floor paradigmatic and ceiling paradigmatic. So they point out, hey, here are some of the behaviors you're then to aim for if you're really keeping the sixth commandment. Right? And so they go through uh, all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting thoughts, subduing passions, avoiding temptations which tend to the unjust taking away of life. And they just make it expansive because they're recognizing, yeah, law is paradigmatic, and there's a floor and there's a ceiling, and we need to avoid all aspects of the floor and shoot for all aspects of the ceiling. And so question 136 goes on, what are the sins forbidden? And the sins forbidden are taking away the life of ourselves or others, neglecting or withdrawing lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Well, that, that sounds a bit different than do not murder, well, maybe on the surface, but once you understand the paradigmatic nature of law and this floor ceiling, do you see how they're, so do you see what they're doing there? And it's brilliant. And it's such a helpful understanding uh, to have in mind as you approach the law. The fourth key to keep in mind with the law, I know I'm going quickly here, but I want to make sure we can get through as much as possible and still leave time for questions, uh, is the third use of the law. So you, you remember there um, sometimes, I'm not talking about the distinction here between moral, civil, ceremonial. I'm talking about first, second, third use in terms of first use of the law, the civil use, uh, or, or how a law can be used in civil society. Second use the, is often known as the pedagogical use. And in reform circles, we often focus on the pedagogical use. That's the use in, in which the law shows you, it's like a mirror, hey, you, you're sinful. And because you're sinful, you need a savior. That's a very biblical use of the law. 
That's what Paul does in Galatians, right? Where, when he talks about the law being a pedagogos, an instructor, a teacher to lead us to Christ. But remember, Calvin comes along and he talks about the third use of the law. And this is where, to use the, uh, if the second use is a mirror, the third use is a lamp. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. In other words, the law marks out the paths in which the Lord himself walks so that we know the paths that we can walk in to stay close to him. Please remember the third use of the law when you're preaching and teaching through a book like Leviticus. Uh, sometimes when we use the second use exclusively, what we end up doing, even, even if intentionally, is we model to our, our congregation or our Sunday school class, if we're always focusing on it's a mirror to show you your sin, what, what we're doing is we're saying, even implicitly, you, in a sense, you come to the Bible to be condemned. You read law to be condemned. And if that's what we're emphasizing to our people, it's hard for us to have any room in our theology of the law for a, play, for a psalm like Psalm 119. We need room in our theology of the law for Psalm 119, and the third use of the law helps us. And I would even suggest, if you're putting Leviticus in its context, the third use of the law is one of the best uses. Because remember, as we said near the beginning, Exodus 19, you're to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. How do we do that? Answer, Leviticus. It's supposed to be helping people to understand how to walk in the paths that God himself walks in and how to embody his character in this world. So please remember the third use of the law. All right, so we're going through five questions here um, that, that I hope help us understand how can we teach and preach Leviticus today. A second question is this, well, which laws apply? This is a question that often comes up you know, when you're teaching and preaching on Leviticus. Which laws apply? And, and it's actually a pretty complicated question with a really long history of interpretation. Um, the shortest way, and for me, what I found the most helpful way to answer it uh, goes, goes something like this. Uh, because Leviticus is part of the Old Covenant, and because Jesus has inaugurated a New Covenant, the laws of Leviticus do not necessarily apply in the same way today. And that word necessarily is key. Because Leviticus is part of the old covenant, because in Jesus we're under a new covenant, the laws of Leviticus do not necessarily apply in the same way today. And the reason I say necessarily, there are actually two different reasons. The first is many of the laws in Leviticus are actually repeated in the New Testament. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's Leviticus, repeated five or six times in the New Testament. I once heard some, somebody say, you know, uh, we're not Leviticus people, we're love your neighbor as yourself people. And I, it was just, you know, I just smiled. I thought, you know, uh, 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 what's the uh, spoiler alert? Yeah, you know, uh, Leviticus 19. But anyway, so that's one reason why you have to say not necessarily apply in the same way. The second reason you want to say uh, it doesn't the laws of Leviticus don't necessarily apply in the same way today is because, as we've, as we've seen, even when a law is not repeated in the New Testament, it's still based on the Lord's values. 
And because it's based on his values, there's usually something still for us to learn and take away. Uh, and so if we're remembering those things, we're always trying to ask, what aspect of the Lord's heart are we seeing in this kind of law? And, and what does that mean for us today as believers who follow Jesus? I've given a little chart there that comes out of a commentary I've written on Leviticus. Um, and I've broken laws down into four different categories there. I won't go into detail in this, but um, I, I explain the different reasons why some of these laws are not repeated uh, in the New Testament. But, but try and point out, remember, the value behind the law is still applicable. All right, third question here. How do we address topics that are culturally strange? How do we address topics that are culturally strange? Ritual purity and impurity. Uh, if you're teaching in a country like India, that's not a strange concept. If you're teaching in America, Canada, many Western countries, that's a very strange concept. Uh, how do we do it? The first point here, or thing to remember, is the importance of understanding accommodation. The importance of understanding accommodation. What I do not mean by that, what someone like Calvin did not mean by that, is that God accommodates his values to ours. That's not what we mean by accommodation. God's not accommodating his values to ours. No, what we mean by accommodation is that God communicates to his people in a way that they can understand. Uh, Calvin talked about God uh, being like a, uh, a nursemaid who lisps to young children, uses baby talk so they can understand. Right? God is the master communicator, and so he, he understands how we think as human beings, um, what our culture is, and so he accommodates himself to that by communicating in ways that we can understand. And that's helpful because uh, some of the things in Leviticus are strange to us for two different reasons. And they're both rooted in this idea of accommodation. First, some issues are strange um, because the cultural issues are so different from ours. We're dealing with cultural issues that seem strange to us. So in Leviticus, um, Chapter 21, priests are told that they may not uh, shave their heads. You know, I've got the, uh, the text here. Yeah, priests shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beard, nor make any cuts on their body. And you and I are reading that, and we're thinking, what is, that's, what's going on? That's just so strange. Well, then we back up to Leviticus 19, and we begin to see, oh, in Israel's day and age, for whatever reason, certain hairstyles um, or cutting the body, they were associated with pagan practices. Leviticus 19, 26 through 28. Don't eat any flesh with blood in it. Don't interpret omens or tell fortunes. You see, we're in the realm here of pagan practices. Uh, and in that realm, don't round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Don't make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Right? And so what's going on here, the Lord is speaking into a culture that's different from ours and addressing a very live issue in that culture. And he's saying the last people 
that are supposed to be doing pagan practices are priests. So you see, understanding Israel's culture begins to help us understand why it is that the Lord would have this law. Um, accommodation can also help us uh, in a related way with cultural concepts that are, are strange, like ritual impurity. Um, so let me put it this way. Sometimes the Lord's addressing cultural practices that are strange to us. That would be like cutting yourself or marring the edge of your beard. At other times, the Lord is making use of um, cultural concepts that are strange to us. So ritual purity and impurity, for many of us in the West, that's a cultural concept that's very strange to us. But to people in an ancient Near Eastern context, that was a very common cultural concept. It wasn't just Israel that had laws about ritual purity and impurity. Other ancient Near Eastern cultures had these same kinds of concepts. And so uh, when Moses comes down the mountain and says, hey, certain things are pure and other things impure, it's not like Israelites were going, really? No more bacon. No, they, they already understood things about ritual purity and impurity. And the Lord in his wisdom, what do master communicators do? They go from the familiar to the unfamiliar. And so the Lord says, aha, there's a concept that I can use to teach my people. And so what he does is he weaves this issue of ritual purity and impurity into his law in such a way as to teach Israel. Here's what I think the purpose is of doing that. He's, he's helping them on the one hand to understand, yeah, I have set you apart from the nation. You're to be distinct. And one of the ways you're going to be distinct is by the, the laws related to ritual purity and impurity that you, that you have and that I give to you. But what he's also doing is he's giving them this reminder throughout the day. Hey, if I want you to be this way when it comes to ritual matters, how much more? when it comes to moral matters. How much more? In Leviticus chapter 20, there's a whole series of laws about um, uh, sexual ethics, very much moral matters. And at the very end of the chapter, what does the Lord say? Seemingly out of nowhere, uh, and you shall not eat impure animals, only pure animals. I'm paraphrasing there. What? What? How does that fit? What's though to say, remember, these laws about ritual impurity and purity are this reminder to guide you in matters of moral purity and impurity. Let me illustrate it a different way. Uh, several years ago, so I've been teaching at the seminary 20 years now, and several years ago, uh, I did a class just on Leviticus. And one of the projects for the class was you had to, for a week, you had to live Levitically. Uh, meaning you had to follow as many laws of Leviticus as possible without getting arrested. And so as you did so, I said, keep a journal. Uh, and uh, at the end of the week, I read through the journals. And you know, there were comments like one day, one, one, one brother, his entry was simply along the lines, I miss bacon <laughs> a lot. I mean, that was his. But what I found was that almost in every journal, by day three or four, there was an entry that went something like this. For the last three or four days, 
I have been constantly thinking about what it means to deal properly with ritual impurity and what it means to seek ritual purity. And all of a sudden it struck me, if that's what the Lord wants me to do at a ritual level, how much more at a moral level? Oh my goodness, I'm beginning to see the holiness of God in an entirely new way. Over 90% of the students had an, an entry like that in their journal. And I'm reading through with tears in my eyes, this, this moment of spiritual, it was spiritual renewal for me, just seeing how these laws had an impact. So anyway, the importance of remembering accommodation and how, how the Lord in his grace is accommodating himself um, and speaking to cultural practices that may seem strange or using cultural values. But once we understand them in context, we can begin to take something away. All right, fourth, fourth question. How do you address topics that are culturally offensive? Uh, and I'm just going to say a few things here very quickly, almost in a principle-type way. Um, there are lots of things in Leviticus that are culturally offensive. And in your, if you're teaching and preaching through it, you've got some apologetic work to do along the way. And here are some different approaches you can take as you're doing that. So in some instances, the key is clarifying what a verse means in context. And to get at this, this is where I might take an approach of, you know, beginning with ourselves. Have you ever been in a situation where you find yourself saying, that's not what I meant? Uh, we value people understanding our words in context. A lot of times, my wife's name is Ski. Ski and I, when we're having an argument, a lot of times what I need to be doing is, is asking myself the question, what is she really saying here? What does she really mean? And once I do that, it's amazing how often these arguments can, they just begin to solve themselves, right? We value that. That's part of the ethics of communication. This morning, we're looking at Leviticus 12. And may I encourage us to, uh, to give that same uh, kindness that we want others to give to us to Leviticus 12 this morning. Let's take a look at what Leviticus 12 has to say. Right, so you're, you're beginning to put things in context. I, I mentioned Leviticus 12 because this is the passage that says if a woman gives birth to a, um, a girl, she's impure twice as long as when she gives birth to a boy. And we're reading that, we're thinking, what in the world's going on? And what we hear Leviticus saying is, girls have less value. That's what we hear Leviticus saying. And if I'm preaching and teaching on Leviticus 12, I want to begin by saying, please, let's hear this verse in its context. Because if Moses were here today, he would say, that's not what I meant. That's not what the Lord means. Uh, and just quickly, as an aside on Leviticus 12, so what is going on there anyway? You know, in, in, in teaching or preaching through Leviticus 12, my starting point would be, we have to remember this is Israel's story. And Israel's story begins with Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, the Lord says that God makes humanity male and female in his image. And what that means is that from the very beginning of Israel's story, God is affirming the value and worth of, of women. In fact, that verse is exactly what you would expect to find if God thought that women were of equal value. It's not what you would expect to find if he thought women were of less value. 
And that's how Israel's story begins. So when they come to Leviticus 12, they know one thing. This passage can't mean that women are of less value. Doesn't fit the story. So what might it mean? And then you're off to the races thinking, well, what might it mean? And I'm not going to tell you what it might mean. You can take a look in the commentary for that. But, but you're, you know, you're, you're beginning, you're beginning to, to help people that, that clarify what a verse means in context. Uh, in other instances, you, we're going to need to name and challenge um, some of our own cultural assumptions. Uh, and so this is where you're, you're saying things like, um, so you're, you come across the topic of sex. You're in Leviticus 18. And what you're doing here is you're beginning to, to name for people what some of our cultural assumptions are. Because many of these assumptions are just that. We've never really thought through them. And so you want to begin to, to name, yeah, one of the reasons that these laws seem so strange to us or even wrong to us is because of some of the things we assume culturally. Uh, and so when it comes to sex, for example, in um, the meaning of marriage, the Kellers say, you know, historically there have been different attitudes about sex. Uh, sex as a natural appetite is one. Uh, sex as part of our lower physical nature is another. Um, third view, prominent today, sex is a critical form of self-expression, a way to be yourself. And so you begin by, by naming what those, uh, what those assumptions are. And now your next step is either um, just contrast. Let me show you the, the, the beauty of the biblical picture. And it might not persuade you, but I at least want you to understand it today. So you can take a contrast approach, and, and there you begin to, to lay out how the Bible views sex. A, a second thing you could do actually leads us to D3 on your outline. You use uh, an A doctrine, B doctrine approach. And this is what Tim Keller um, does. Um, I've given you a couple examples here, but uh, Tim's point is simply, in many cultures there are A doctrines, things we naturally accept and think are great, and B doctrines, things we think are horrible. And what you can do is you can take when you come across a B doctrine, you, you lash together some A doctrines like a raft, and, and that's what you can float the B doctrine across on. And because we're running short on time, I'll just refer you. I give you a couple examples there on the handout uh, of how one brother has done this. All right, last question. Um, how do you get to Jesus in teaching Leviticus? Uh, and um, the answer here, or the answers are, you know, you can... Generally speaking, you can ask, well, how, how is it that this passage um, relates to the life and teaching of Jesus? Uh, but more specifically, here, here are some questions that you can ask. Is there something here that foreshadows Christ's work? Uh, Leviticus 17.11 and sacrificial atonement would be a great example. Is there something here that anticipates Christ's teaching? Leviticus 19.18 here, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, beautiful uh, anticipation of Christ's teaching. Is there something here that illustrates Christ's character? So that law about not gleaning that we saw and the compassion there for the poor. There's some element there that's, that's illustrating Christ's character. Uh, and uh, I should have mentioned right up front, so in terms of resources, I wrote a commentary on Leviticus in the Tyndale series. And at the end of each chapter, um, there's a, like a four to 500 um, applic word application section where I try to model some of these principles and how you can do them. 
Um, there's a longer commentary in Leviticus that Lord Willing's coming out next year um, in the Zondervan exegetical commentary in the Old Testament series that I've written. And um, there I had one seventh of each chapter to give principles for how you might teach and preach Leviticus today. And so I was just so excited about that. And I tried to break each of those sections down into three different, you know, three, I gave, would give three different titles that could be three sermon points um, for, for teachers and preachers um, going through Leviticus. The Lord bless you. We'll see you later. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.